So obviously, as women transition between perimenopause to postmenopause, well, maybe we can identify, we'll talk about a couple things here. What are some of the impacts of lower estrogen levels, right? How does estrogen directly impact other physiological systems? And I guess this is a silly question coming from a man who doesn't experience this, but what are some of the symptoms that women can look for to determine whether they are entering perimenopause or postmenopause or whatnot? Right. So as mentioned, uh, a decline in estrogen, it, it, it's very complicated, but it does change the way we metabolize lipids. So yeah. the, the fats that we're eating are metabolized differently. It's a really good idea to prioritize omega-3s at this stage, to be very mindful of saturated fats at this stage. What's up, friends? Welcome back to the Dr. Joey Munoz Show. Today's episode is really interesting and we shared a ton of really fantastic information that I haven't really talked about much on this podcast before. And it's the relationship between nutrition, diet, body composition, physical activity, all of that good stuff, and cognitive health specifically. I had a wonderful conversation with a friend of mine. She goes by the Cognition Dietitian on social media. Her name is Barbie. And she is an expert in all things brain health. And she really took a deep dive to learn more specifically about the relationship uh, between different lifestyle factors, nutrition, exercise, and brain health, specifically because her mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, which is incredibly sad. But anyways, she shared her knowledge with us here today on the podcast. We discussed, as I mentioned, how nutrition and exercise influence cognitive health and some of the things that you should be looking to do to reduce your risk of cognitive diseases like dementia. But then she also talked about some other variables that we often don't think about, such as our social life and our social connections, such as the importance of always continuing to learn new difficult skills, right? And the benefits that, that those types of things can have towards our cognitive health and reducing our risk of disease as well. Before we go ahead and get into the podcast episode, if you are all enjoying the podcast so far, I would appreciate if you took a second to leave a rating and review the podcast on whatever podcasting app you're using. It really helps me a ton to uh, continue to reach new audiences and share the message. If you're on YouTube, I would appreciate if you take a second to subscribe and like the video. Hope you guys enjoy. What's up, guys? Listen, Barbie and I have been troubleshooting back and forth. This is the second take we're recording of the podcast. Barbie, thank you so much for being here today. We were oh. just talking about your background. I was mentioning how much I enjoy your content because you talk about nutrition um, and exercise from a cognitive perspective and how to improve cognitive function and perhaps reduce the risk of cognitive diseases as we age, which I haven't really been seeing um, many people talk about. So it sets you apart, which is great for social media. But I'd love to know a little bit more about your background. Yeah. So as I was saying, I have been a dietitian for 25 years. And when I was in school, it was very obvious to me that there wasn't much distinction between men and women. And that always really interested me. And so I decided I was going to focus on women from the very beginning. And I've always been in private practice. I just started that right away. And over the years, as I've gotten older, um, I have gotten more interested in the perimenopause, menopause stage of a woman's life. And as I started researching that, having more clients in that space, it became very obvious to me that our metabolic health uh, changes uh, because yeah. of a decline in estrogen and just from hormonal changes. 
um, our, our metabolic health is at risk in a way that it may not have been before, even if we've always taken really good care of ourselves. That led me to realize that our brain health really rests on our metabolic health. If we are not metabolically healthy, our brain is vulnerable to neurodegenerative mm. disease. And then my work became very personal when my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and she oh, wow. lives with me and I take care of her. So it's a very up close and personal experience with this disease. And of course, yeah. there are other types of dementia as well. But I just really want women to feel empowered in this stage of life. And part of that is taking really excellent care of our metabolic health and preserving our brain health so that our 60s, 70s, 80s, hopefully beyond is, you know, exactly what we want it to be. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I definitely want to take a deep dive because I know you mentioned that some of the things that you really like to discuss um, are how or how specific markers of metabolic health can change during peri or postmenopause, right? Before we get into that, I think it's perhaps important to establish what are some of the relationships between um, nutrition, health, body composition, obesity, physical activity, those types of variables, and cognitive health or risk of cognitive disease as we age? Yeah, so all of it, so our blood pressure, our insulin sensitivity, our intra-abdominal fat storage in particular, our cardiovascular health, all of it plays into the health of our brain. The blood-brain barrier is highly vascular. It's very vulnerable and sensitive to our vascular health overall. So making sure we are doing what we can to help prevent type 2 diabetes, heart disease, fatty liver, any, you know, the beginnings with insulin resistance, and then carrying excess intra-abdominal fat is also a risk factor. And it's not completely understood why, but a couple of good theories, you know, we obviously mass, uh, um, visceral fat is a risk factor for all types of metabolic illness and type 2 diabetes, heart disease. And again, that puts us at risk of neurodegenerative disease. So that deep abdominal fat that we tend to carry if we are carrying extra weight or um, are living with obesity, that can, the inflammation from that can affect yeah. our, our brain health. In addition, obesity, overweight is associated with type 2 diabetes and heart mm -hmm. disease, both of which are risk factors for uh, dementia. So anything we can do, again, to protect, think about protecting our metabolic health is going to benefit our brain. Again, the associations aren't perfectly clear like with most things, but we do know that there's a very, very strong link. Yeah, that's a great overview of the subject. And there's a couple things here that I want to define because oftentimes, so I'm sure you, like myself, we tend to forget what we don't know, right? And, yep. and some of the terms here I'd like to define um, for you and I, it's pretty obvious, but what does metabolic health mean in the first sure. place? I, thank you for saying that. Metabolic health. So it, mostly when people think about metabolism or, or more, mm -hmm. hear the word metabolic, they're thinking of metabolic rate or the amount of energy that we burn in a 24-hour period. Yeah. Metabolic health is your blood pressure, your blood sugar, your blood lipids, and your body composition. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about metabolic health. And all of that plays into the health of your brain. Yeah, that's fantastic, right? All the things that your doctors look at when you get blood drawn, right? Your blood sugar, your insulin levels, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps markers of inflammation, oxidative stress, all of that stuff 
which yeah. I feel like people just think it's like numbers on a piece of paper and they don't really understand what it means. Right. Or perhaps people think of these things as isolated systems, right? My blood sugar, diabetes, nothing else. Mm -hmm. Blood pressure, cardiovascular health, nothing else. When in reality, all of these systems are integrated, right? Mm -hmm. um, I talk about this all the time, how like the reason why excess ad adiposity is a contributing factor to all of these diseases is because of perhaps the underlying chronic inflammation, which is something that you lightly touched on. Mm -hmm. And that's such a hard concept for people to really understand because people don't really understand what the word inflammation means in the first place. Mm -hmm. They think inflammation means swelling or bloating. And that's not what inflammation means at all, right? Swelling can be a symptom of inflammation, especially mm -hmm. an acute inflammatory response. Like if you have a cut, you know, the area of the cut is going to swell. That's part of the inflammatory process. But the inflammation is really an immune response, right? And when we talk about inflammation, we're really talking about the concentration of specific molecules in our blood, right? So when we talk about blood glucose, that's the concentration of glucose in our blood. There's other molecules, which are what we call inflammatory molecules. And unfortunately, when you do have excess adiposity, um, our bodies tend to secrete more of those inflammatory molecules, right? And some of the common ones we look at when we get some blood work done are things like TNF-alpha, CRP, some of those things, right? Mm -hmm. And those molecules are linked to pretty much every disease. Right. And it's, it's hard to say they're the cause for everything, but it really does seem that those inflammatory markers play a role in most disease states. So it doesn't, it's not a surprise um, to me at all, that also plays a role in cognitive function, even though I personally haven't read much of that literature at all. Yeah. So I appreciate you sharing that. The thing I want to discuss specifically, which is your area of expertise, yeah. is during peri or postmenopause, mm -hmm. what are some of these metabolic changes that can occur? Why do they occur? How are they related to certain hormonal changes? Um, and then we'll discuss what can be done about that afterwards as well. Yeah, but to keep things relatively simple, because I, I, I think we can and, and have it be well understood, the decline during the perimenopause years, which can be four to eight years, for some women a little less, for some women a little bit more, and then the average age of transition to menopause is around 51 in the United States. So this can be most of a woman's 40s. Mm -hmm. Estrogen isn't this kind of lovely, slow <laughs> decline. Uh, it very erratic. It's up and down, which is what is responsible for a lot of the sort of erratic um, symptoms that we have and how uncomfortable it can be for some women. Some women sail right through and barely notice a blip. Other women quite literally are in bed and, and can barely function. And then there's a spectrum in between. But it is primarily this erraticism and then ultimately ultimate decline in estrogen that is responsible mm. for changes in lipid metabolism, changes in glucose metabolism, changes in brain function, changes in the way our brain metabolizes. So and we will actually see on MRI structural changes in the brain during the later phases of this time. So. It really, estrogen really impacts almost every body system. So when it's erratic and then ultimately gets to very low levels postmenopausally, it can feel very uncomfortable. And, you know, as you know, metabolic illness, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, lipidemia, we don't feel those things. 
which yes. is why it's really important, especially even if you're someone, I have a lot of clients like this, 20s, 30s, didn't go to the doctor much. It's time. <laughs> yes. Because you really want to, part of, part of living really well into your 60s, 70s, 80s and beyond is be, becoming a really good patient in your 40s and 50s and checking in regularly with your blood pressure, your lipids and your glucose to make sure things, the needle isn't moving in the wrong direction. But you know, there are other hormones at play too, obviously, progesterone, testosterone, but primarily what we're looking at, what's most researched is uh, estrogen and that erraticism and ultimate decline that can cause a lot of these issues. Yeah. So I, I did a good amount of work on estrogen when I was doing my PhD with regards to bone health specifically. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Cause my, my professor did like decades of work, um, on postmenopausal women and bone health and looking at different foods that could help improve mm -hmm. bone density as you age. And I thought I've talked about this a couple of times in the podcast, but for the women listening, if you do have bo low bone density, prunes seem to be very helpful, 50 to hundred grams per day. And that's some of the work that we did in our lab. You know, so, I, that's really cool. And I actually think that prunes, you know, we don't like to talk about superfoods, but my grandmother ate prunes every single morning, starting in her forties. She lived to 99, was exceptionally oh, wow. healthy right up until the very end, cognitively present. She was, she was only ill for the last six years, six months rather of her life. So prunes, everybody. That's great. And wow. you know what else she ate with her prunes? Oatmeal. So let's <laughs> I have a video on oatmeal coming out soon. I do too. <laughs> I'm hilarious. Oh, but um, to, to talk a little bit more specifically about estrogen. So yeah. obviously, as women transition um, between perimenopause to postmenopause, well, maybe we can identify, we'll talk about a couple of things here. What are some of the impacts of lower estrogen levels, right? How does estrogen directly impact other physiological systems? And I guess this is a silly question coming from a man who doesn't experience this, but what are some of the symptoms that women can look for to determine whether they are entering perimenopause or postmenopause or whatnot? Right. So as mentioned, uh, a decline in estrogen, it, it, it's very complicated, but it does change the way we metabolize lipids. So yeah. the, the fats that we're eating are metabolized differently. It's a really good idea to prioritize omega-3s at this stage, to be very mindful of saturated fats at this stage. Uh, we also are at an increased risk of insulin resistance because of this decline. Um, not totally understood, but we, we do, the way we metabolize glucose changes a bit. In addition to that, we um, fat storage redistributes to the belly area, so that that intra-abdominal fat is a risk factor for insulin resistance as well. Um, interestingly, just something, and I will send you a link if you want. A new study that came out that linked not only excess visceral fat, but also excess subcutaneous abdominal fat with, with brain shrinkage, with, with uh, you know, changes in the brain that are problematic. So we used to think that it was really more visceral fat, but it turns out subcutaneous fat in the abdominal area may be an issue as well. And we are vulnerable to that in, peri in perimenopause and postmenopausally. Um, High blood pressure, you know, so we are at an increased risk of high blood pressure because estrogen and progesterone um, really aid in uh, blood, um, uh, blood pressure regulation. And 
also changes in the brain. This is partly why we might experience increased brain fog, forgetfulness, mm-hmm. difficulty concentrating, mood swing or mood instability, I should say. Mm-hmm. So estrogen plays a lot of roles. It's working for us all of the time. And as it starts to decline, all of these different things can come up. In terms of what we actually notice, there are the cognitive changes, the brain fog, the difficulty concentrating and so on. And we can talk about distinguishing that from, you know, what might be a bigger issue that you would want to get checked. Right. But uh, in terms of symptoms, they usually start pretty subtly. But one of the first things a woman will notice is changes in her men- menstrual cycle, either farther mm-hmm. apart, closer together, heavier bleeding, just changes. That's usually the first thing women notice as we get farther along, hot flashes, um, vaginal dryness, things like this are pretty telltale that's that especially in your mid 40s to later 40s, that's pretty indicative. But then there are more subtle cues like fatigue and this brain fog that I'm talking about, mood instability, but those can have a lot of causes. So yeah. really more looking at the hot flashes, the vaginal dryness, difficulty sleeping um, and changes in menstruation. Great. Yeah. You mentioned something really interesting that I actually didn't even know about the fact that when estrogen levels decline, women are at a greater risk of storing fat as, as intra-abdominal, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Visceral fat. Do we know why that is? Does estrogen play a role in fat mobilization and where we store fat specifically? It does. The reasons for it, again, are, are kind of theory, maybe because fat tissue does produce estrogen. We want yes. to keep it in an area where it's easily accessible for energy and that's the belly. Lots of different ideas about why that might be. Not really known why, but it's it's a thing <laughs> for all women. No, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting because we know that visceral fat specifically is associated with all of these adverse health outcomes, right? And to learn now from you that low estrogen levels are associated with an increased storage of fat in visceral uh, compartments is is really interesting. That's something I, I didn't know at all. Yeah. And it's part of the reason, you know, sometimes, not always, but sometimes women will feel as if they've gained weight uh, yeah. during this time. I mean, men, many women legitimately do gain weight during this yeah. time. Sometimes it's not so much an actual change in the number on the scale. It's this redistribution to the belly mm. area. So pants are yeah. fitting differently. Clothing is fitting differently. And it is, you know, it's not, not even for aesthetic reasons. This is not just an aesthetic thing. We really want to pay attention to this because we do know that intra-abdominal fat can be problematic for metabolic and brain health. Yeah. And so how do you... How do you speak to a client, perhaps, that is experiencing some of these changes, right? They feel really upset about some of the physical changes that they're undergoing. And then also, how do you have the conversation uh, of, we, we can attack this one secondarily, but women that perhaps want to blame everything on hormonal changes and perhaps not take ownership for some unhealthy behaviors that they do that have been negatively affecting their body composition, health, et cetera. Right. So first of all, you asked me how I talk to someone or what I say. I always lead with compassion. First of all, because I've been there. Secondly, because that's just how I operate. Working with me is a judgment-free zone. It's just data for me. Um, But also because, you know, sometimes people will 
say to me, well, you've never struggled or this is your job or this is, you know, just uh, you don't understand. I absolutely do. Between the ages of 40, weight had not been a a problem. 99 problems, weight wasn't one, right? (laughs) And then between the age of 47 and 50, I uh, put on, I, I was about 35 pounds outside of my comfort zone by the time I turned 50 and, you know, um, needed to reevaluate my needs, what I was doing, my habits, the fact that I was allowing stress to get to me. And so mm-hmm. I made some changes and, you know, here we are today. So it can be done and I've been there. So I know to lead with understanding and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, what will often happen, and I'm sure you hear this too, but I'm not doing anything differently, but, you know, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds, and we're always doing something differently. If that has changed, you know, to that extent, we are doing something differently than what we were doing before. So it's a matter of being a detective, you know, let's really have a conversation about what you were doing when you were feeling good and energetic and you know, love and life versus right now, let's really look at it. So that's usually my first conversation with a client who is, um, you know, for whom fat loss is a goal and they're not really understanding why it has happened. We have to do some investigation. Mm. And that is usually really revelatory. And there are a few steps to that. It's a conversation, really looking at things, perhaps spending some time tracking which I don't love as a long-term solution, but I think as a short-term educational tool, I think it's really revelatory. I I mean, I've never had a client that wasn't like, whoa, I just learned a lot. I had no idea, right? Because it does, I mean, you know, things change in perimenopause and postmenopausally, but all the same rules apply. It just might, for various reasons in our lives, be a little bit more challenging to affect those kinds of changes. Certainly. So would you say it's fair to say that weight gain and changes in body composition for women who are going through menopause are not exclusively due to changes that they're undergoing? Yeah, the the redistribution of fat to the belly area, that happens. Yes. Um, It doesn't mean that we can't do something about it. Uh, And we're not talking about a six pack or, you know, a being in shape healthy. Yeah, exactly. Um, But in terms of, you know, the 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 pounds, I mean, no, that that's not hormonally driven. What can be hormonally driven, and I have experienced this myself as I've in the later stages of perimenopause, um, it, the hormones very much affect, affect your appetite. Mm-hmm. And so there can be days where you're cruising along and everything's fine. And then there can be days where you genuinely feel like a bottomless pit. Nothing is yeah. satisfying no matter what happens. And of course, that's an energy balance issue ultimately. Yes. But it, it can also affect your sleep quality, which can in turn affect appetite regulation. Totally. In those ways, it indirectly plays in. What we're not talking about is a sudden drop of 100, 200, 300 calories in your basal metabolic rate because of hormonal changes. Does that make sense? Totally. You brought up some really fantastic points, which are things that I talk to some of my clients too often. Because I do have female clients who are older who want to focus on achieving a certain level of fitness. And it's difficult to have some of these conversations, right? Because Mm -hmm. there's a lot to talk about here. One is, as you mentioned, 
it's not directly the effect of hormonal changes, but certain hormonal changes can make certain things feel more difficult, mm -hmm. right? Like you mentioned, appetite regulation, perhaps food cravings, perhaps the way you deal with stress, which with stress, which in turn can then influence food choices, sleep mm -hmm. quality, which we know influences um, hunger and satiety regulation, energy expenditure, et cetera, right? So it's all integrated. But I think the important thing to, to conclude here is that something can certainly be done about it, right? You're not hopeless just because you're going through this transitionary period in your life. Right. And does it suck that it's more difficult? Sure. <laughs> it's not fun, right? Right. You know, it's something out one really quick. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah, you, but I no problem. Get to say this, you know, a decline in estrogen also is associated with our decline in muscle mass and it, and it can mm -hmm. also make it more difficult to build muscle mass. So we are kind of doubly challenged there. We've got that natural decline, age related decline, but then this decline in estrogen can make it difficult to get it back. So yes, women have to work a little harder in midlife to achieve probably their goals, but it can be done. It can. And you, you mentioned a word hopeless. And I just want to say, I have seen, continue to see, feel myself that not only can midlife be hopeful, it can be completely empowered and powerful yeah. for women. And, and perhaps even more so than ever in their lives. So I just really want that to be a takeaway for women. We can be yeah. healthier than we've ever been. Yeah. But yeah, we've got some challenges. We got some roadblocks to work around. And that's why people like you and me exist, yeah. you know, doing it. Yeah. I have a, a client of mine. She has a coaching company and it's specifically for women going through perimenopause, which mm -hmm. is really cool. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Kylie Larson is her, her social media handle. I, I I'll have to share her yeah. profile with you because it's, it's all training related and she's in great shape. She's super strong. I, I've been working with her for a little over a year now and she recently like niched down and made her coaching specifically for women who are going through perimenopause because a big part of her coaching is community as well. And I right. think just having a group of individuals going through, in her case, exactly the same thing, right? Because it's very mm -hmm. niche down can be very helpful for people because That's, I you, love hearing that. Yeah. You don't feel hopeless. If you see other people going through the same things, they share their struggles. They share how they overcame those struggles. It's way more relatable and makes you feel more empowered to actually be able to achieve the change that you want to change yes. or achieve the change that you want to uh, change, I guess is the right word there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what are some of the things? And again, you, you and I were talking, uh, back and forth before this and you're like you know they're not sexy recommendations it's nothing groundbreaking which oftentimes are the things that people want to go for first mm -hmm. right because when you feel like you're or you're desperate or in a mode of desperation you're going to go for some of these things that seem really attractive right are you tired of spending countless hours grocery shopping cooking and preparing your meals i get it Time is precious, and that's where Icon Meals comes into play. I've partnered with Icon Meals to bring you delicious, macro-friendly, and high-protein meals that will make it easier than ever for you to achieve your fitness goals. I understand that you may have hesitations over the cost of a meal prep service compared to cooking food at home. But let's face it, how often do you spend more money eating out because you didn't have time to prepare your food at home anyways? With Icon Meals, you not only save time, but you invest in your health. 
These meals are carefully crafted to be healthier and more in line with your fitness goals than most of the food that you eat out anyways. So why wait? Visit IconMeals.com and explore their wide array of mouth-watering meals. And as a special bonus for listening to this podcast, use code JOSEPH10 at checkout for a special discount off of your order. By the way, you can find all of the necessary links in the description of this podcast. Don't let time be a barrier to your success. Choose Icon Meals and fuel your journey towards a healthier, fitter you. So let's first talk about what are some of the most important things that women can do during this transitionary period? And then what are some of the things that you see specifically, uh, perhaps marketing scheme targeted, targeted towards this population specifically that absolutely grinds your gears? <laughs> God, there's so much. So specifically, and this relates both to the post transition and also brain health. I get it's what I call the low-hanging truth fruit, right? And it's really important to master these basics before you go looking for the exotic. And that's not to say that there aren't things that are interesting out there that may sort of be a bonus or a cherry on the cake. But there's also a lot of nonsense, of course. But if you aren't exercising, sleeping, you know, generally practicing good nutrition, managing your stress, all of that is just, it, it's not going to get you anywhere. A green drink isn't going to solve that. A supplement isn't going to solve that, you know, a sauna blanket, whatever. Uh, but so definitely, you know, I kind of put exercise and sleep on the same tier together. It's really hard to say one is more important than the other. Uh, because if we're not sleeping, we're not going to have the energize, en energy yeah. or activity, yet activity helps us sleep better. And both, I would just put them on the same level, are crucial for brain yeah. health. Every brain health expert agrees because there can be some dissemination about nutrition uh, and, you know, specifically what's recommended and whether or not something is truly that beneficial. Exercise and sleep, we got to get these down. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important in, in midlife too, um, because we, those two things can be a struggle. So making sure you're getting seven to nine hours of really good quality sleep and moving your body, just bare basics, whatever you can do, whatever you will do, whatever you will be consistent about. Obviously there are specific recommendations, 150 minutes a week of preferably zone two cardio, get some hit in there, or there's high intensity, maybe 20 minutes a week, 70 or more minutes of strength training a week. That sort of bundle is really great for brain and metabolic health, as you know. And then, of course, we also don't want to ignore functional exercise, making sure we can still put boxes on shelves and get up from the couch and all. I mean, it sounds like, why are we talking about this? That's an 80-year-old problem, but it's going to be a problem if we're not yeah. attending it now. Balance and flexibility, too. And then, of course, there are certain foods that there's a lot of research behind them in terms of being beneficial for the brain. Olive oil, berries, fatty fish, I mean, colorful fruits and vegetables, mm -hmm. leafy greens, low saturated fat, high fiber, all of these things. Again, it's super, it sounds super basic, but if you're not doing it, do yeah. it. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? You're missing out. Yeah. In terms of exercise. Are there some differences perhaps in terms of cognitive benefits between cardiovascular exercise and resistance training that you're aware of? They both have benefits yeah. and we need both. And so if anyone is recommending, you know, kind of pushing you in one direction or in the other, and one of the, you asked what grinds my gears, one thing that really does bother me is a lot of conversation about 
cardiovascular activity not being good for women, raises cortisol, messes with hormones. And it's just like, ladies, (laughs) that's not. Um, We need both cardiovascular activity and uh, strength training. That conversation or that narrative about cardiovascular activity might be coming from, you know, the whole cardio queen 80s and 90s of trying to be super thin and overdoing the cardio. But generally, we're not talking about extremes. We're talking Mm -hmm. about just said, you know, about the zone two and a little bit of, of high intensity. Yeah, totally. So I'm a huge advocate for resistance training Yeah. for a couple of reasons. One, I think, I guess things are changing now, but most people still are kind of afraid to resistance train, especially older populations, right? Some of the myths that really bother me is like, it's unsafe. You're going to injure yourself. And it's like, it's not. And this is, I'm not telling people to be bodybuilders, but bodybuilding actually has one of the lowest injury rates amongst most um, sports, right? And we're not telling people to go play soccer or anything like that competitively either. But in general, if done correctly, it is extremely safe, especially if you're training through full range of motion, doing things slowly and controlled, which is something I always advocate for. It actually significantly reduces your risk of injury, right? Another reason why I'm such a big fan of it, especially as we age and for women in particular, is what you mentioned, loss of muscle mass, Mm -hmm. right? And cardio is great, but you don't get the same muscle building benefits as you do from resistance training. And then um, the last thing I always mention is because oftentimes, you know, to at least a lot of most of the clients that I work with really want to optimize body composition. And to do so, you have to do a good amount of resistance training, right? Three, four days a week for maybe an hour or so is what I would say kind of like on the lower end of something that's going to be close to optimal. And people have lives. They don't have an unlimited amount of time to exercise. So one thing that I do with a lot of my clients is actually structure their resistance training in a way where it actually taxes their cardiovascular system significantly, right? You could get both in the same workout. And doing things like supersets where you do two exercises back to back. So you're not resting much. Your heart rate is through the roof. If you do higher reps, your heart rate's through the roof. If you do some free weight movements, squats, lunges, your heart rate's going to be through the roof. So for those reasons, I tend to favor resistance training more, but I do really try to structure in a way where you're still getting that cardiovascular benefit if you are limited on time. Yeah. Um, But I always encourage cardiovascular exercise on top of that as well. Yeah. And I just want, I agree with you a hundred percent. And one more reason strength training is really important and beneficial for women in midlife is this increased risk of insulin resistance. And Mm -hmm. the more muscle mass we have, the more reservoir we have to store glucose, Mm -hmm. glycogen. Um, One other thing, and I will speak to this as a woman who was mostly doing cardio, some yoga, some Pilates, things like that, up until the age of 50, like when I said, I I realized I needed to make some changes because I I needed to re-familiarize myself with my body. I had a friend who I really respect and admire for her knowledge, and she said, strength training is going to change your life. And I was hesitant because I have injuries already. And, but I went for it and, and she was right. You are right. Ladies, if you are in midlife and you're, you're avoiding strength training for whatever reason, please get out of your own way on that because it is truly one of the best things you can do for your body. And additionally, because of these body composition changes, like you're talking about, 
it, it's almost magical <laughs> how it changes the way you feel in your body. And yeah. You're stronger, clothes fit differently. You carry yourself differently because of the strength that you gain. So I can't speak highly enough of strength training. I just don't want women to avoid cardio. We need of course. Yeah. We do need both. They both have unique benefits, right? Resistance training has some benefits that cardio doesn't and vice versa. Right. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that your experience was that, right? That you used to do a ton of cardio and it was perhaps mentally tough to transition to, to prioritizing strength training a little bit more. And I can't tell you how many times I've experienced that with clients. Yeah. I've, I'm actually working with a client now and I believe she's probably late fifties or early sixties. And she's been a cardio junkie forever. Okay. Like would run for several hours, multiple times per week. And then she was always upset. She didn't have the body composition she wanted, even though she was pretty healthy. Like she wasn't overweight by any means. Um, and she was doing very restrictive, uh, or having a very low caloric intake because she wanted to achieve a certain type of body composition. Mm -hmm. And the first conversation that we had on the phone, and I told her this might be the, the make it or break it for you because I'm either going to convince you or you're not going to hire me. I was like, if we work together, we're going to do a fraction of the cardio and we're going to do a ton more resistance training. And she did some resistance training before, but it was never her like main modality of exercise. Right. And we've been working together now for about four, four or five months. Mm -hmm. And body weight itself hasn't really changed much, right? Her weight's come down slightly, I think maybe two or three pounds. But her body composition has changed, like visibly, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, arms are more toned, looking more muscular. But the really cool thing is how cool she feels lifting some heavy ass weight, right? It's very yeah. empowering. She's like, wow, I've never been able to do she's doing. 30 pound dumbbell chest presses nice. and doing deadlifts with over a hundred pounds and the psychological benefits of how empowering that can be, I think are difficult to understand unless you actually do it. Right. Absolutely. I would not have believed how, um, how good it feels to be stronger and, and to make it, to incorporate that into your overall plan. You know, I, I women, my age, I'm almost about to be 53. So women in their late 40s to mid 50s. Yeah, we grew up in the 80s when it was all about being real thin, strong, never discussed. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our, you know, self-talk is still about that. Even though yes. I think a lot of us know better now, it, mm -hmm. it's we're still sort of conditioned to think thin is where it's at, where it's strong is what we really yeah. want to be. And we can look and feel even better than, you know, ever if we're incorporating this nice balance of, you know, because yeah. I mean, cardio is super important for your lungs, your heart, carrying oxygen, nutrients, you know, benefiting the, the way your brain operates. But the strength training is, is just what is going to have you feeling like a million bucks. Yeah. And I was going to say something here. I kind of blanked. If that's um, okay the just like the benefits you get for normal physical function right like yeah. being able to lift something over your head like you mentioned mm -hmm. not having your joints hurt when you go up and downstairs right um like it's it's so cool how simply just lifting something up and down can have those benefits right yeah. oh the, what i was going to ask you with regards to cognitive health specifically <laughs> do we know I'm, I'm sure there's data on this maybe i'm not sure if you know the statistics off the top of your head but how much of an impact 
does regular exercise have on reducing risk of cognitive diseases like dementia? Oh, it's significant. I mean, it's an up, upwards of 50% reduction in risk. And interestingly, leg strength in particular mm. is associated with a reduced risk of dementia, all dementias. So um, yeah, definite. And that would, of course, come from, you know, I mean, things certainly like running, biking, but also strength training. Yeah. And so would you say that the reduction in risk from exercise significantly outweighs perhaps the risk or genetic risks that individuals have? Obviously, it's not going to re reduce risk to zero, right? right? Right. But I don't know some of these genetic conditions where perhaps risk is increased by five or 10%, or is it significant? Is it like a 40 or 50% increased risk when you have some of these genetic abnormalities? Are, are we talking about the genes that relate to Alzheimer's disease? Yes. So just real quick, I can run it through. There are three genes uh, that are extremely rare, less than 1% of Alzheimer's that are hereditary, that if you have one of these three genes, it is almost certain that you will develop Alzheimer's disease. They are almost very rare. Yeah, almost. Wow. Um, They're they very rare. You would know this because it causes early Alzheimer's disease. You would see it in your family. Again, very rare. Then there is the APOE4 gene, which is Correct. mostly what we hear about. You can have one or two copies because you would inherit either one, you know, you inherit from each parent. So you would either have one or two copies. And one copy of APOE4 confers a two to three risk of Alzheimer's and uh, two copies confers an eight to 12 times risk. So this okay. is not deterministic at all. And if you have, if you happen to be tested and if you have one or two copies of APOE4, there are guidelines for you specifically watching your cholesterol and making sure your metabolic health is in good shape. But it is not deterministic at all. And exercise absolutely is crucial for those with APOE4 and then just in general pre preventing risk. In terms of how much it would decrease the risk of someone with APOE4, I can't say. Um, but again, I can link you a, a really excellent, uh, another really excellent paper that sort of runs through all the risk factors and sure. it talks about exercise. So. Yeah, I'd love to check that out. And I think one thing here that's important to, um, to bring up is when you talk about like a four to five fold increase in risk, mm -hmm. right? Because that sounds really scary, mm -hmm. right? But in reality, it's a four to five fold increased risk relative to your baseline risk. Right. Is that correct? Yeah. So if you can, if you can mitigate your baseline risk by doing all of these things, in theory, the impact isn't going to be as drastic if you have one of these genes, right? right. This is similar to when people talk about saturated fat, red meat consumption and colon cancer in men specifically, right? And I think the data shows I could be wrong about this specific number, but the, the thought process is the same. I think it increases relative risk by 20% or something like that. And people often think, oh my God, like a 20% increase in your risk is huge. And it's a 20% increase in relative risk, which means that it's relative to your baseline risk. And I think risk for colon cancer across the general population, somewhere between 10 to 20%, if I'm not wrong. And again, those numbers may not be exact, but let's say it's 
20%, it would be a 20% increase of 20%, mm -hmm. right? So it might right. increase your risk to 24%, mm -hmm. uh, which is still significant, but it's it's not as scary, right? <laughs> not, it's not scary as, as it sounds at the outset. And, you know, exactly. um, a lot of discussion was had when Chris Hemsworth acknowledged that he has yes. two copies of HOE4. And, and so there was a lot of discussion at the time, which is great because it created awareness. At the same time, I think it also created maybe some fear. unnecessary fear. Yeah. And it also, to be clear, a huge portion of Alzheimer's dementia patients do not have APOE4. They have two, APOE3 or even APOE2. So I say this not to create fear, but everyone is at risk. We mm -hmm. all have something. There's a pinned reel on my Instagram page that lists kind of all of the risk factors that we're aware of to date. There probably are more and they play with each other. There is no one singular risk factor. So, uh, you know, we are all at risk of, of yeah. neurodegenerative disease. And I, again, I say that not to create, not to be scary, but to hopefully, um, you know, promote some motivation to take really good care of our brains. And what I always say is if you are focused on your brain, say, instead of your ass or your abs. Yeah, are really covering it all, and yeah. you know things like your healthiest body composition, better energy. It's all going to sort of emerge if what you're paying attention to is the health of your brain, because all of it yeah. plays in. Hey guys, some of you may not know that I'm the scientific advisor for a supplement company called Outwork Nutrition. I help with the formulation of new products to help ensure that they're effective and backed by science. Unlike many other supplement companies out there, we don't rely on exaggerated claims or flashy marketing tactics. Instead, we let the science speak for itself. We take pride in formulating products that deliver real results, helping you achieve your fitness goals in a meaningful way. If you're in the market for supplements like protein powder, pre-workout, or recovery products, make sure to check us out at outworknutrition.com. And as a thank you for being an avid listener of this podcast, use code Joey for an exclusive discount at checkout. You can find the link to our website down in the description of this podcast episode. Remember, our goal is to empower you with science-backed supplements that truly make a difference. Choose Outwork Nutrition and elevate your fitness to new heights. Yeah, health is integrated, right? Like right. If, if, if you feel good, most likely you're in a good, healthy state, right? And you can't be physically fit. Well, what I was, I guess, with some certain exceptions here, if you're physically fit, you're mentally fit, you're cardiovascularly fit. Right. Everything goes hand in hand and you can't really isolate these systems because they're they're all influencing each other. Sorry, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because I, I think it was a sort of a nice segue, is that we, you know, obviously and, and importantly, we've spent a lot of time talking about exercise and a tiny bit about nutrition. But it's also important to remember that there are um, things you can do to benefit the health of your brain significantly that have nothing to do with exercise and nutrition. Yes like maintaining healthy social connections, you know? And this is not about being the life of the party. This is about having a, um, uh, a, a, a even a small close-knit circle where you feel supported and it feels safe and you're talking and you're challenging each other and you're interacting, you're lighting up each other's brains, continuing to learn new information and actually using it. 
And while brain games are fun, like on apps and stuff, that's not really what I mean. What I mean is actually learning new complex information and translating it into stuff that you would be doing every day. Managing your stress, you know, having really healthy outlets for stress. I like to tell my clients to have three things that take three minutes and do them three times a day, because I believe that stress management is prophylactic. You know, we want to, we want to try to do it preventively. Yes. Meditation, breath work, a walk, you know, a hot shower, dancing to your favorite song. It can be anything, um, but it needs to be accessible in times of stress. And if we haven't practiced it, it's not accessible. Does that make sense? Totally. I, I definitely want to talk about those things in a little bit more detail, but I, I yeah. don't want to um, jump over the nutrition component because I, yeah. I had a question in mind that I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. And yes, right. General healthy nutrition is the most important. Make sure you're consuming an adequate amount of energy. I would say that's probably typically top of the hierarchy because mm-hmm. energy consumption matters. Consuming whole foods, a wide variety of foods, so you're meeting all your nutritional needs, protein, fiber, et cetera, all the basic stuff that we tend to talk about all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Are there specific nutrients, though, that seem to have unique benefits for the brain? Mm-hmm. And should people supplement with those, right? Like omega-3, for example, is very popular. Right. Yeah. So omega-3 is probably being top of the list in terms of what you can supplement. Very important for the brain. For- possibly particularly for people with ApoE, for, Mm -hmm. just want to point that out because of the metabolization of it. And so, you know, marine life, fatty fish, also algae, if you're a vegan or vegetarian and you prefer that uh, to go that route with supplementation. Uh, One quick note about plant foods that other than algae that contain um, omega-3s, they are in the ALA form, which needs to be converted into EPA and DHA, so it is not as readily available. So we don't want to be entirely relying. They, they're beneficial for lots of reasons, things like flax yeah. seed, chia seed, you know, but we don't want to be completely reliant on those for our omega-3 fats. Um, so there's that. Um, also polyphenols, so, you know, antioxidants, um, phytonutrients, things that we get from green leafy vegetables, colorful vegetables and fruits. They're particularly abundant in things like berries, olive oil. So getting more of those foods. There is a, there was a research study done at Rush University, Chicago in 2015 called the Mind Diet Study. So Mediterranean-Interventions for Neurodegenerative Delay. So that was published in 2015. You obviously know about it. It's a great study to read. Dr. Martha Claire Morris, who has unfortunately since passed, published a book called Diet for the Mind that is really just the entire study. Lots of really great. But that is eight years ago. So much research has been done since um, to kind of update it. For example, wine was included with the original study. We're not, we don't, you know, we're not loving that so much anymore. Yeah. A book that was a cookbook, but also um, in contains a lot of amazing information about more updated information with the the mind diet is uh, the Brain Health Kitchen by Dr. Annie Fenn. Highly recommended. It's just sort of the updated version. Awesome. So mind diet is a good place to start. It's really just an adaptation of the Mediterranean approach, uh, specifically targeting Alzheimer's disease. Oh, cool. You should publish your own book. <laughs> well, maybe one day. It will not be a diet book, though. I think we've no. got too many of them. 
Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Or like what the, you know, what we can include. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to talk about quickly here on the diet side of things is yeah. the importance of phytonutrients. Yes. Right. Because this is what my professor spent his entire life studying. It's just like oh, the health wow. benefits of different phytonutrients. He did a ton of work with soy specifically, mm-hmm. but he did some work with black beans and all of that good stuff. Um, not just black beans, all kinds of beans. But, you know, one of the questions that people often ask is like, for vitamins and minerals and fiber, can I just take a fiber supplement and a multivitamin? And I don't discourage that because you're still getting some nutrients from those things. The thing is that plant foods contain thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of other compounds, which aren't essential for human life, right? So we won't die if we don't have them. And perhaps we also haven't classified all of these uh, molecules correctly, but we essentially, it's the umbrella term phytonutrients, right? Which are nutrients found in plant-based foods that aren't classified as essential vitamins or minerals. Right. That being said, there's plenty of research showing the positive health effects of these compounds. Mm -hmm. And truthfully, these compounds are probably responsible for the majority of the health benefits, consuming a ton of fruits and vegetables, right? Yes, the vitamins and minerals are great, but like these things have very potent health benefits, right? They tend to be very uh, potent anti-inflammatory agents, antioxidative agents. And as we were talking about earlier, we know that inflammation is a contributing factor to all of these diseases. Inflammation increases if you increase adiposity, but even as you age, right? Because your antioxidative and anti-inflammatory um, mechanisms also deteriorate with each. So if you can get more of those compounds from your food, and again, I really don't like when people demonize certain foods, but also idolize specific foods. Like acai is like a huge thing, right? Like all plant foods, to some extent, can be considered superfoods. Right. And they all have unique health benefits. And one of the things that blows my mind and something I talk about often is all of these different diet gurus have one thing in common. They restrict stuff, right? They restrict either a whole food group or a specific food or whatever it may be. They restrict stuff. Right. And if we look at the research objectively, mm-hmm. dietary, um, what's the word here I'm looking for? The opposite of restriction, including more foods in your diet. Okay? Having, yeah. uh, more variation in your diet, more variability in your diet is associated with positive health, cal- health outcomes, right? Absolutely. Like eat more stuff, not less stuff. And one thing, and this is such a simple recommendation, and actually my buddy Adrian, he, I'm sure you know him, Dr. Adrian Chavez. Yeah, he, he brought it up in a conversation we were having. It's like, if you consume things like, uh, this is just an easy way to increase variety in the diet. Like if you're going to have some vegetables with your meal, right? Most people might have like a good amount of one vegetable. Like right. let's say I'm going to have some rice, some sort of protein and some broccoli. Instead of just consuming the broccoli, have a veggie mix and you're getting like 10 different vegetables there. Yes, vegetables are important, but having variety is also important because of these micro, uh, not micronutrients, phytonutrients in foods that have all of these benefits. It's cardiovascular benefits, uh, diabetes preventative benefits, cognitive benefits. And it's hard, like people don't really know about this and people don't really talk about it much because people just know the conventional stuff. I know. What I like to say is leafy greens every day and a rainbow throughout the week. 
So, you know, that's great. Yeah. For me to get the purples, the blues, the reds, the oranges, the yellows all throughout the week, because it can be hard for some people to pile it on through the day. If you can do it, amazing. But leafy greens, um, you know, it, as a result of the Mind Diet study, really do appear to be particularly beneficial. So just some spinach, some arugula, lettuce is perfectly fine. But then trying to get colors throughout the week in the form of fruits and vegetables. Yeah. But yeah, what I always say to people who really kind of, they, they say they don't like fruits and vegetables and they really just would prefer to take a supplement. I say, like you, I, I don't discourage, you know, a multivitamin or a fiber supplement if it seems like it's necessary. But what what I describe is there is a symphony happening in, you know, a whole apple or a kiwi or yeah. that we don't even understand yet. So they are associated with a decreased risk of disease. But we don't even totally know why. So to try yes. to isolate the compounds that we presume to be beneficial may not, in fact, be. So it, plus it's a lot more expensive, usually. Yes. Um, you know, it, it bothers me that we want to, uh, especially in this country, we really want to try to bottle it or put a, yeah. you know, put it in a pill and we can't do that. That's partly what we're missing about the benefits of, say, the Mediterranean approach to food or nutrition. It's not the isolated component. It's the no. overall diet. It's the fact that they don't necessarily are, they're not always run into the gym. They have a lifestyle that encourages activity. They socialize. Yes, they might have a glass of wine most days, but it's usually just a little glass while they're socializing. You know, it's a whole different approach and we try yes. to put it into a pill. Yeah. And we're making a mistake with that. Yeah, so much great information there and so many thoughts that just came into my mind with the idea of like food being a, sym a symphony. It, it's true, right? And like the diet being a symphony overall because we also right. tend to talk about the specific effects of like one food, which I get it, but like I don't like talking about things like that too much. And one that really like, and you might have seen my posts on this on social media that really bothers me is the whole red meat thing. Mm -hmm. um, because like, yes, there there is data showing that high amounts of red meat consumption is associated with adverse health outcomes. But there is so much nuance there and so many variables at play, mm -hmm. right? Like not all meat is the same. Not all red meat is the same. Right. There's a difference between processed and unprocessed red meats. And then even then, even there, there's a difference in the unprocessed red meats in terms of fat quantity, right? We talk about saturated fat. Well, if you're consuming like 93.7 or 97.3 lean ground beef, it doesn't really have that much saturated fat. It actually falls below the limit of 10%, right? right. right. And then you go on top of that and you look at diets, uh, at, at studies that evaluate different aspects of the diet and look at relationship between red meat consumption and fruit and vegetable consumption and individuals who eat high amounts of red meat and high amounts of fruits and vegetables and fiber don't seem to be worse off, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, I hate talking about one thing in isolation. Well, for and, and we're so, social media is so good at that, right? Yeah. And, you know, again, like I have to say in this country in particular, but it's the same thing with eggs and, you mm -hmm. know, that dairy. Um, and what I say to my clients, because I really want to create help with them, create something that is not just going to work today, but is going to work for the next 5, 10, 15, yes. 20 years. I want it to be sustainable. Otherwise, I have failed. And yes. so I work with whatever they enjoy. Now, when it comes to saturated fat, just going by guidelines that appear to be beneficial for um, cholesterol health, LDL in particular, 
I like to try to keep saturated, a total saturated fat, less than 7% of total calories. Do what you want within those parameters. If that's eggs, that's cheese, if that's full fat dairy, if it's, you know, whatever it is. But that's where I like to stay with my clients who are, you know, their LDL is in the 150s, 160s. And because, you know, I do want to point out just real quick, and hopefully it's, yeah, I, I believe it's on topic because... LDL is elevated LDL is associated with an increased risk of dementia and Alzheimer's, Um, you know, particularly in midlife. And I have so many clients, perhaps you do, too, who have had LDL in the 140s, 150s, 160s for five, maybe even 10 years. And it's not being addressed. And people don't really recognize that the length of exposure time matters. Damage is being done. So even if you, uh, you know, make changes, um, perhaps start taking a statin or other cholesterol lowering medication and your numbers are now good, you had that time when it was elevated that could be problematic. So we do want to address with nutrition and lifestyle no matter what. Um, but yeah, when it comes to talking about demonizing any one food, it's a giant red flag, eliminating, you know, whole food groups or telling you to not eat your favorite foods. I have so many women asking me about oatmeal, which is why I'm doing a real thing. I'm so glad you are too, because I will share it in my stories. Because, you know, I mean, this is, it's silliness. It's absolute yeah. silliness. It's a really big indication that someone is not well-educated in nutrition if they are telling you to not eat something. Yeah. I wanted to ask you with the, the, the stuff regarded, regarding um, leafy greens, what yeah. particular nutrients are high in leafy greens that seem to have unique benefits for cognitive health? What foods are, sorry, I, I got that. Sorry, like what about leafy greens specifically oh. seems to be uniquely beneficial? Yeah. So it's the phytonutrients. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and green appears to have the widest spectrum. So, you know, we, they, the, the phytonutrients are, they, they are in the pigments, really, yes. which is why we want an abundance of color in mm-hmm. our diet. And green appears to have a nice wide spectrum. That's the theory, that that's probably why yeah. um, they are so beneficial. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and the last thing I want to touch on with regards to nutrition, because I mentioned earlier that we shouldn't necessarily think of any foods as superfoods, yeah. but I do want to talk about berries for a second, right? And the reason why berries, you know, people talk about blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, whatever, being super helpful, and they are, and it's because they do have such a high concentration of these phytonutrients compared yeah. to other yeah. foods that may not have that high of a concentration, right? So like a handful of blueberries is absolutely loaded with these compounds that we're talking about. So yeah. I do put berries on like a pedestal in some ways. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I think that some brain health experts might argue, you know, we, you know, we don't want to like give berries this super halo, but it's true that they are very concentrated in these beneficial nutrients. They're also very high in fiber. Re- although we don't worry about the sugar in fruit, they are yeah. relatively low in sugar when it comes to, um, you know, what's available in terms of fruit. So yeah, I think berries are great. Great. And it, now, I mean, they're not always great fresh or they're super expensive. So yeah. frozen is an awesome option for berries. Yeah, frozen. I always buy them frozen and just throw mm-hmm. them in smoothies and stuff like that. It's yeah. so easy. And oftentimes, like when you buy them fresh, they don't taste that great <laughs> if they're not in season. <laughs> um, yeah, especially it's so funny. My wife and I eat a ton of cherries uh-huh. and we have the whole like, uh, sh- actually, she brought this up. 
finishing on a good cherry because oftentimes some of them are like really sour, just have no flavor mm-hmm. and it sucks. And then you have one really good one. It's like, I'm just going to stop there and not test my luck on the next one. Right. Um, I go out. Yeah. <laughs> a silly joke that we have. But the last thing I really wanted to talk about, and you were talking about some of these things, right? The importance of other lifestyle factors. Mm-hmm. I've talked about sleep, nutrition, exercise. Everybody hammers those down. Um, you lightly mentioned the importance of having active social life, having friends, feeling connected, feeling like you're part of something. I'm sure that has to do as well with perhaps uh, feelings of loneliness and depression, mm-hmm. how that can influence brain health, yes. right? Right. Yeah. I, loneliness, depression, loneliness and depression tend to uh, be associated with one another, both of which are risk factors for dementia. Yeah. It Again, one of these things that, you know, you can't nail it down to a specific mechanism, but just the idea of sharing connection with other human beings. Yes. Um, you know, our emotions play big into yes. our health. And feeling safe, feeling supported, feeling like you've got some, you know, someone in your life has your back, you've got someone to talk to, and also the stimulation, you know, that yeah. that is exists between friends and family members who really have a great yeah. time talking to each other and keep each yeah. other on top of things. Um, so that is probably part of the reason for that. But yeah, it's really important. But again, you know, I'm an introvert. And so, and I know a lot of introverts. And so plunging yeah. for us. Yeah. Yeah, we can be fine for like months. Well, it's not so much talking, but it's connecting. It's connecting. Which everybody craves, even if you're an introvert. Absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of a joke. But it's, it's, yeah, it's true. So, you know, but I I mean, what I mean is that you don't have to be the life of the party. You don't have a million friends. You don't have to always be chatting it up. It's just about feeling connected. Do you know if there is a relationship between just like, self-reported uh levels of like happiness or content with life and cognitive outcomes oh definitely there appears to be again and it it could be there as i said um depression loneliness sadness are absolutely associated with an increased risk of dementia um whereas uh you know feelings of contentment purpose is really yeah. important. Having a, a sense of purpose is um, associated with a decreased risk. So yes, I mean, generally living a, and it doesn't mean every day is a parade, but in general, you're feeling content and satisfied with your life and like you, you have purpose. You're here for a reason. And the last, the last topic that I'm really interested about, and this is kind of just selfishly, what? I want to know about this personally. Is there some sort of connection or benefit? I think you touched on this lately of doing things that are cognitively challenging or playing games that are difficult, like chess, for example, or something mm-hmm. like that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's less about, I mean, games are great and they are definitely stimulate your brain and, and make connections and strengthen connections. But what is really beneficial, like there's a huge association with cognitive decline and retirement. Uh, So it really is more about, I'll give examples, like learning a new language and traveling to that country, Uh, learning about plants and starting a garden, learning to play a musical instrument, things that you are actually doing. Yes. You're taking knowledge, complex, complicated, new knowledge and actually doing something with it, learning to cook 
and, you know, cooking for your family or friends or having regular events, that kind of thing. So it's learning and then actually using that knowledge. So things that require focus, intent, and concentration. Mm-hmm. And, and execution. Yeah. If yeah. you don't use it, you lose it, essentially. That's just, yes, it's that yeah. simple. <laughs> that makes me feel good because I, for some reason, have always been attracted to like just learning new things that seem challenging. Yeah. Um, and and so maybe from uh, a brain health standpoint, I'm pretty, uh, pretty set. <laughs> yeah. Never stop learning. Never yeah. stop learning. Definitely. Yeah. Anyways, Barbie, I appreciate you a ton taking time to be here um, today. It's um, my pleasure. It's been I a great conversation. I appreciate you and your work. So thank you very much. Of course. And I'm sure you and I will stay in touch. I would appreciate if you shared how people can get in touch with you on social media. And if somebody wanted to inquire to perhaps work with you one-on-one, how would they do so? Yeah. So on Instagram, I am the Cognition Dietitian mm-hmm. and my website is barbiebowls.com and you can connect with me through the connect page on my website. Yeah. And I'll share both of those links in the description of this episode. Thank you.